0: Welcome. Welcome to a new episode of the Kingdom Project podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Hall. And today we will be continuing in the book of Galatians in chapter three. Uh, So, uh, because of recent surges and increases of COVID 19, we're doing uh, church this way. All right. So. So I'm just going to continue instead of pausing and putting everything at a halt. We are doing it this way where most, uh, most everybody at the church hears this and then the listeners hear it as well. Uh, Those of you that just follow the podcast. So um, one note real fast, I'll make it's been very cold uh, here where I live. So I've not kicked off the heat. So if you hear a uh, clicking or a starting up of a noise, at some point during this episode, that is the heat uh, because the HVAC system is in the same room that I record in, in my office. Uh, I've explained this before that at uh, most of the time during the year, whether it's winter or uh, summer, I will just turn the heat or the air off. That way there's not a background noise uh, disturbance, but it's, uh, it's been really cold. So, I'm not doing that because I don't want the rest of the family to be cold while I'm back here recording. So, <laughs> anyway, Galatians chapter 3, 19 through 25. This is the purpose of the law. All right. So, by now, we should all be aware uh, of this letter uh, about the whole purpose of Paul writing to those in the region of Galatia. All right. The whole purpose... Uh, that behind it from Paul is about justification by faith. It's dealing with the issue of legalism in the body. Uh, the false teachers in that region were teaching it wasn't enough to just have faith alone in Christ, but to also keep the law. All right. So the last uh, last time we were here looking at this, we were looking at the Abrahamic covenant. All right. Along with the historical theological relationship between the covenant and or between that covenant and the mosaic law so paul was pointing out the unconditional nature of the promises uh, that had been made to abraham and the incompatibility between receiving the inheritance as a gift on the basis of a promise and receiving it as a payment for keeping the law now paul is always anticipating the objections or the questions that would come up or the line of thought from all those who oppose him and what he has to say that would be opposing his apostleship as well and the gospel that he has presented. So basically he knows they're going to be like, okay, well, uh, if all, all of what you said was true and the covenant promise to Abraham was for him and his seed, singular, Fulfilled by Jesus, then why? Why the law in the first place? What was the purpose of the law? What's up with that? So, the answer is found in the first verse uh, that we're looking at today, verse 19. Why then the law? He anticipated this, okay? Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Okay, so if the inheritance of the promised blessing does not depend on the law, as Paul has just declared in verse 18 that we saw last time, then why was the law given by God at all? Well, Paul makes it clear that salvation is by grace through faith, and it's not on the basis of human obedience to divine imperatives. So why did God give the law? Well, according to Paul, the law has this negative purpose. It was added because of transgressions. OK, so according to him, the law was was made uh, the, or the law made the transgression increase. Right. Romans 5 20 says in the law came in that the transgression might increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now, a lot of people use that <laughs> for just keep on sitting. Of, of course, that's not the case. Should we go on sinning? By by no means. No, 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 no. Okay. All right. So because of man's sinfulness, all right, the sinfulness that we're born in debt. Okay. When boundaries are drawn, they naturally want to cross over those boundaries. All right. The, we see, make a line, draw the line. You're going to cross that line. So, in the sense, the law makes sin abound because it draws many clear lines between right and wrong that the sinful heart just wants to break. So, the law makes man sin more, right? Not because there's anything wrong within the law or with the law, but only because there's something deeply wrong in the human condition. So, the law provides the objective standard by which the violations are measured, in order for sinners to know how sinful they really are or how far they deviate from God's standards, then God gave the law for them to look at and to figure it out. All right. Before the law was given, there was sin. Right. But after the law was given, sin could now be clearly spec- uh, specified and measured. All right. So the law tells us what sin is and it spells it out. Romans 7 7 says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the, on the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. All right. So once the law was given, each act or attitude could then be labeled as a transgression of this or that commandment of the law. So, although Paul says that it was added because of transgressions, it can read as if the law was given in response to man's sin. However, it's better to understand the law as the means which God has employed to make sin evident in the the human's life. So, that phrase, because of transgressions, it's better understood that God wanted to move sin into the specific category of violation of the expressed and clear will of him, of God. So, the law was added to create transgressions, that is, to make it clear, all right, to make sin clear, uh, clearly a specific act of rebellion against God. So, it's not that it's creating sin, it's the, the law was added to make sin clear um, that it was a specific act of rebellion. So, God gave the law to make men aware of the depths of their wickedness, of their rebellion against him. He didn't give the law to make man aware of his disobedience just so that he would cease it and begin to obey, but to show that he couldn't obey it. All of this means that the purpose of the law what was negative and it made men aware of their sinfulness and it was also temporary let me make something clear though. when i say law was negative i don't mean that god's words or his standards are negative but the actual law the 613 commands of the law was given to be a negative in a person's life now they could truly try to follow all of those laws and um I'm sure you could do some of them, It's all 613, I'm not sure. But I use the word negative in the sense that it was negative because it showed that they were never going to measure up. All right? So, uh, also, as I said, it was temporary. So, the word added implies that the law was not a central theme uh, within God's redemptive plan. It was supplementary. And secondary to the enduring covenant that w- that had been made with Abraham so the word added marks the beginning point of the mosaic law all right the word in until marks at an end point the mosaic law came into effect at a certain point in history and was in effect only until the promised seed appeared So Paul states this temporary framework of the law by stating until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. All right, again, the seed. The seed has already been identified as Jesus. Now the promise of an, excuse me, of an an internal or eternal inheritance, all right, verse 18 was not made to any and all men, but rather made to Abraham and Christ. So writing under inspiration, We must not forget that. Paul states that the promise referring to the Abrahamic covenant was made with Christ. The true full meaning of the Abrahamic covenant was not to Israel, but to Jesus and all those in him by faith alone. The law was added until Jesus came with the new covenant. Then the verse says, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Okay, so the word angels is messengers. And the the thing is, we don't have have to think of messengers as, as as men, such as John the Baptist. But many would say that we should, because of no mention in the Old Testament of... of there is no mention of angels giving the law. Uh, we, we know, though, that the New Testament interprets the Old. So even if we don't see angels in the giving of the law in the Old Testament, we do in the New. And we can find that it was commonly taught that the law did not come to Israel straight from God. For instance, in Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, it is that author's point that God speaking during the period of the law was through prophets who were inferior to the Son by whom he spoke the gospel. When we go to Hebrews chapter 2, 1 and 2, we find that it's precisely his point that the law was spoken through angels, which makes our attention uh, to the gospel, the more necessary. All right. So, looking, looking at what Stephen proclaimed uh, to the audience in Acts seven, you'll note that he also declared that the law did not come to Israel straight from God without intermediaries. He clearly declared that Moses received the law from angels. So, Paul Paul's argument in Galatians three nineteen is that the uh, superior covenant is easily discernible. In that its purpose was positive, its framework was permanent, and it was not mediated. It was confirmed by God alone. The law, on the other hand, was negative in purpose and temporal uh, in framework and until only the seed should come. And in the inferior covenant was confirmed by two parties with an intermediary, That's as Moses as the mediator. So, as for us today, we should observe the law's divine purpose, right? Uh, that, that the divine purpose is, is per- precisely opposite of the, 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 of what m- that maintained by the Judaizers. Because they sincerely believe that the law was the remedy for sin rather than the revealer of sin. OK, so verse 20. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. All right. Now, if you were to back up and last time, last sermon in verse 17, Paul had already stated that uh, the divine method for a man to be declared acceptable by God. It was his declaration that the covenant of promise was the covenant by which the inheritance would become a man's possession. And that covenant was ratified by God his point was that it was completely God's uh, doing to confirm the covenant of promise man had no part except to accept the word of promise by faith the covenant of the law was however both different and inferior in respect to the covenant of promise it was different in that it was not confirmed by one party. Rather, it was confirmed when two parties agreed to its conditions. All right. That's God who gave the conditions and Israel who accepted the conditions. And it was inferior in that it was confirmed through the use of a mediator. So the, the law had a mediated origin. So the law does not provide direct access to God. All right. So under the Mosaic covenant, the people did not have access into the presence of the Father. It was only the fulfillment of the promise is, uh, or the promise and the bestowal of the Spirit to those in Christ guaranteed direct access to God. All right. Now, if you don't get that, it's because there was a high priest, and the high priest would would be the one that was uh, mediating between you and the Father. And They were only allowed into the Holy of Holies once a year which was known as the present where the presence of god was and where it dwelt and this was to atone for the sin and um it was also known as like the uh the uh, meeting you know the intersection of heaven and earth all right so verse 21 is the law then contrary to the promises of god certainly not for if a law had been given that could give life then righteousness would indeed be by the law all right so since both the law and the promise were given by God, they must be complementary rather than contradictory in the overall plan. All right, the two covenants could only be contrary to each other um, if they were competitive. So since no law can impart life, there's no competition. All right, the law is complementary to the promise because it revealed that nothing but grace Can actually produce life and cleanse one's conscience and take away condemnation and guilt and shame so Paul argues that if the law could do these things if it could in fact impart life then righteousness would be by law all right the point of contention between Paul Paul's grace gospel and those who teach us that we are saved through our our obedience to his instruction is paul's concept of man's deadness towards god all right the problem as paul states is that men are spiritually dead before the command ever reaches them it is fundamentally impossible for the dead to respond or to do living actions all right in in ephesians 2 1 paul had stated that men who are lost, are dead in trespasses and sins. So, they are cut off from the ability to do active actions of righteousness. So, while we are dead, God gave us life, and until he gave us life, we could not respond to any of his commands. Verse 22, But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe so the the law as this the the negative function is condemning everyone all right literally paul says the scripture imprisoned uh everything under sin so his emphasis is on the totality of, of human sin and the totality of god's judgment on all sinners and it reduces jews to the same status as the gentile that the whole world is this prisoner of sin so identification with the Jewish people by circumcision and observance of the Mosaic law does nothing it does not remove one from the circle of what they would consider Gentile sinners now we can see then how the law and the promise work in harmony to fulfill the promise of God because the law puts us down under the curse, but the promise lifts us up in Jesus. We are left with with no exit under the condemnation of the law so that we might find our freedom only by faith in Christ. So, God gave the law to make man aware of the depths of his sin and his rebellion against God. God didn't give the law to make men aware of their disobedience so that he could just he would cease it and begin to just obey, but to show him that he was not going to be able to obey through action because they were dead. Verse 23, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Okay, so in verse 22, the whole world is a prisoner of sin. And then... Uh, And then he says, we are held prisoners by the law in in verse 23. So in one hand, the law is, or in the first case, maybe the, the law is related to all people without a distinction. Okay. It's Jews as well as Gentiles. All are condemned as sinners by the law. And then in the second case, the law is related to who? Israel. So held captive means to guard, but in a negative way. As we are told that before the promise came, the law held Israel as prisoners. It shut them up and it held them in its clutches, always serving to remind them of their sin and uh, their inability to meet its high demands until the coming faith was revealed. So the coming of faith then is synonymous with the coming of Christ in Paul's view of salvific history. This faith came to be realized at a time in history when it no longer looked forward to the promise in Jesus, but it actually realized its fulfillment when he came, which, you know, was his birth. And we just celebrated Christmas, right? So faith has always been the only way that men have been rightly related to God. It was faith that saved Abel. All right. Uh, It was faith that saved Noah. Uh, This is all in Hebrews 11, the great hall of faith. It was faith that saved Abraham in Genesis 15, 6, and a faith that saved Moses and Gideon, Samuel, David, everyone else who's ever been saved. It's always been the same. (laughs) What did people do before Jesus? They had faith in God. They responded and believed. Verse twenty-four. So then, the law was our guardian or tutor until Jesus came. Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Okay, so this tutor, right? It's a it, it, it it's a teacher of children. The second meaning is uh, is one as a a slave having charge of a boy. Uh, chiefly on the way to or from school now uh, in, in Paul's day it was uh, distinguished uh, it was a pedag- pedagogue it was distinguished from the teacher okay this person supervised controlled and disciplined children but the teacher instructed and educated okay so the point of Paul's use of that image is depicting the law or in depicting the law is that the law was given this super uh, uh, supervision, uh, um, like title, right? A dis- discipl- disciplinary role, and it was over Israel, all right. But that that supervision type of control of the law was was only until Christ. So, the purpose of that function of the law was to demonstrate that God's people could only be justified by faith, that we might be justified by faith, right? So, what does it mean to be justified, all right? Being justified is, is facing a righteous court in which God sits as a judge and being declared righteous on the basis of the evidence in which is produced. And the evidence is that Jesus died He took our sin and he gave us righteousness. Then in verse 25, Paul draws a conclusion that demolishes any argument that Christians ought to live under the supervision or supervisory control of the law. All right. And I'll include 26 since it's part of the conclusion. Um, But 25 says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a, a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. All right. So his primary reference, actually, I don't know if I was that 26. Maybe it doesn't matter. We'll get to it next week anyway. <laughs> so the, Paul's primary reference is to the freedom that Jewish believers now experience uh, from the supervision of the law because they have put their faith in Jesus, all right? So if Jewish believers are no longer under the supervision of the law, well, then it would be really foolish for Gentile believers in Christ to put themselves under that supervision, all right? Our new life in Christ is not under the supervision of the Mosaic law. It's under the rule of Christ by His Spirit. Freedom in Christ from that... Supervisory uh, rule of the Mosaic law empowers us to actually live for God because it's resurrected us to new life. All right, so Paul's words uh, here in verses twenty-three and twenty-five, it, it they deal with a decisive blow to the teaching of the Judaizers in that region of Galatia. The law which once distinguished the jews from the gentiles is no longer b- binding even on them the gentile galatians had been persuaded by the judaizers that to be truly spiritual they must place themselves under the law but paul counters this by showing that if living under the law is no no longer necessary for the jews then it's sure, uh, surely not required of the Gentiles either. And that's the whole point here. The purpose of the law was that it was temporary and it was a supervisor. And, uh, and and now it's was only until Christ came and Christ has come at this point. So it's not even for you guys. Why are you making them live and be under it as well? And that concludes that part, this section of chapter 3 of Galatians and we will be moving on next week uh, if you have any questions comments disagreements you can feel free to send them my way at the kingdom project podcast at gmail.com uh, until next time be a mustard seed be eleven. thanks for listening